Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 212. Who went on crusade and why? Last time, Sharon Eastor from the History of the Crusades podcast gave us an overview of why people went on crusade. From the highest lord to the lowest peasant, the Western imagination had been stirred, and thousands of people were on the road walking towards an uncertain fate. As I said then, one could spend a huge amount of time delving into the medieval psyche, but we need to limit ourselves somewhat to the matter at hand, which is to work out what all this means for Byzantium. So we need to know how many people are on their way, who they are, and why they are on crusade. Or to put that another way, what are they expecting from Constantinople? Our narrative will resume next episode, and inevitably we will have to reduce the Crusaders to a few recognisable characters to keep the story coherent. But we should remember that the Crusade was not a coherent force at all. It was a mass of volunteers, all with wildly different expectations about how their mission would play out. Today I hope to give you a richer picture of the Crusading army, so that it will be easier for us to understand their interactions with Byzantium. Let's start with the numbers. How many people went on the First Crusade? As ever with medieval figures, we are guessing, but the best estimates are in the sixty to 100,000 range. Even on the lower end, that's an extraordinary amount. When Pope Gregory had imagined a similar campaign, the highest number he could conjure was 50,000, while Alexius, remember, had been very pleased to receive 500 knights from the Count of Flanders a few years earlier. 60 to 100,000 people was clearly beyond anything either Urban or Alexius had imagined. We should note, though, that plenty of those people never made it to Byzantium. When the Crusades were preached, they often created atmospheres of great excitement. Many people stood up and pledged their support in the heat of the moment, and then later regretted it. We know of several high-profile figures who made their excuses, and certainly hundreds, and possibly thousands, of poorer people had to turn back because of a lack of provisions before they'd got anywhere near Constantinople. Others 
died en route, including some who drowned when their ships sank in the Adriatic, possibly because they were overloaded with eager pilgrims. The makeup of this huge number is also important. Alexius and Urban were really after mounted knights, men with the expertise and the armour to fight the Turks head-on. Of the 60 to 100,000 people on the move, only about seven to 10,000 were actually horsemen, which is about the number you'd expect to find in a large Byzantine imperial army. Backing them up, though, were 35 to 50,000 foot soldiers. Although these men varied considerably in the quality of their training and armour, they still represented an enormous force, far bigger than anything Byzantium could put into the field, and probably bigger than most imperial armies had been since Heraclius' day. In addition to these professional and semi-professional soldiers, there was also a mass of humanity with no military expertise. Because Urban had mimicked the traditions of a pilgrimage when designing the crusade, he couldn't really stop people from perceiving it as such. Pilgrimage was open to all, regardless of age or gender, so when plans were being drawn up for a mass journey to the Holy Land, many ordinary people jumped at the chance. Alone, they lacked the resources and strength to ever contemplate such a journey, but when they found out that their local lord would be travelling with them, offering them protection and resources, how could they resist? Whole families were spotted on the road, pulling carts full of their possessions and small children. Clergymen and criminals alike were also drawn to the venture, meaning a huge number of entirely unsuitable people were now on the march to Constantinople to take part in what was, in practice, a very serious and severe military campaign. Our narrative focus is naturally going to be on the leading men of the crusade. Those who would interact with Alexius and make the crucial decisions along the way, so let's briefly introduce them. As we discussed before, Urban had two men in mind to lead his army to Constantinople. Adhemar, the Bishop of Le Puy, would be the Pope's representative, and Count Raymond of Toulouse would essentially be Commander-in-Chief. Raymond was a firm supporter of the Reform Papacy, and extremely rich, which was going to be key for anyone trying to lead a military campaign a thousand miles from his home base. The Count was also in his mid-fifties, so had the seniority needed to take charge of younger men. Despite Raymond's imposing CV, though, there would be no overall leader of the crusade. This was largely due to the success of the recruitment campaign. So many people responded that it was impossible for one man to take charge of all of them. And I mean that both logistically and in terms of ego. The sheer number of people on the road meant that different routes had to be plotted to avoid exhausting supplies, and so many senior nobles agreed to go that none of them would accept the overall authority of one of their peers. Broadly speaking, the participants in the First Crusade break down into five groups, each with recognisable leaders. North, South, East, 
the Italians, and those who left early. North, South, and East refer to areas of France, or more accurately, Francia, since what we're talking about are the lands west of the Rhine, which includes bits of modern Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, and Luxembourg. At thehistoryofbyzantium.com and on social media, now including Instagram, I've put up a map. It shows the locations of where all the first crusaders that we know about came from. There you'll see the hotspots across Francia, where the majority of recruits came from. And I have to say, just looking at that map, that it's astonishing. Just from a history research point of view, we know so much more about the First Crusade than anything else I've previously studied. Can you imagine if we had a map like this showing where Byzantine soldiers came from? For those of you not looking at the map, it's an image of France with hundreds of numbers covering much of the surface of the land. And those numbers correspond to known crusaders, whose names you can find in the index of Jonathan Riley Smith's book, The First Crusaders. Anyway, as people set off on crusade, they naturally coalesced into bigger groups along the road, and people from different regions gravitated towards those who spoke a similar dialect. They also began to form a loose allegiance to the most senior nobles from their home territory. It made sense to follow someone who looked like they knew where they were going, and it was also practical to do so since those nobles had the money to buy up large consignments of food and supplies. And this is what allows us to broadly speak of groups of crusaders, although we shouldn't mistake a voluntary collective for a disciplined force who follow orders obediently. With the caveats out of the way, then, we can say that Count Raymond of Toulouse was the natural leader of those from the south, while those in the north fell in line behind Robert of Normandy. This is the son of William the Conqueror, who formed a natural leadership coalition with two other men, his brother-in-law Stephen of Blois and his cousin Robert of Flanders, the son of the man who'd sent 500 knights to Alexius. Those in the east ended up with Godfrey of Bouillon as their leader. Sharon talked a bit about him and his brother last episode. Godfrey was a subject of the German emperor, and so despite being French as we would think of it, he ended up leading those who were connected to the politics of the eastern Frankish realm. The Italians, as I called them, are really the Norman Italians, led by our old friend Bohemond whose motives for going east we'll be discussing very soon. Finally, we have those who left early, the so-called People's Crusade, which again, Sharon talked about last time. As you may remember, Urban had set a start date for the campaign, the 15th of August, 1096, a date designed to give the Byzantines time to get their harvest in. Those who left early were on the road straight after Easter, causing big problems as they did. We will cover the People's Crusade in the narrative, but this was a group of ten to 20,000 people who'd been inspired by the preaching of Peter the Hermit. Peter is a character who should be very familiar to us, an ascetic monk whose renunciation of the physical world gave him instant spiritual credibility in the eyes of ordinary people. 
men like Peter were the ones being dragged through heresy trials by Alexius when they became too critical of the establishment. In decentralised Western Europe, Peter was able to travel about gaining a reputation across France and Germany. He picked up on the crusading message and preached it with such skill and passion that he was soon leading thousands excitedly east with little planning or forethought. There were nobles and armed men following in his wake, but contemporaries were struck by how many ordinary poor people were with him. These people, including the old, the sick, women and children, have no voice in the sources, as you might imagine. And yet, in a way, I think their motives are the easiest to understand. The crusade was a great adventure, a chance to do something really significant with your life, to fight God's fight, to liberate the oppressed, and to gain forgiveness and eternal life. I'm sure many also imagined a better life than the one they had left behind, but it's doubtful if they had a real sense of what the world was like beyond the horizon. So what about the motives that we can reconstruct? Why were the crusade leaders heading east? Several scholars speculate that Raymond of Toulouse, in his mid-fifties, was planning on dying in the Holy Land. This was a desire many older pilgrims had, the chance to be buried in the ground that Jesus had walked being an obvious lure. He took his wife with him and left his estates in the hands of his son. Godfrey of Bouillon may also have imagined a new life in the East. For those of you reading ahead, it is Godfrey who will become the first king of Jerusalem. At home in Lorraine, Godfrey was struggling to maintain control over a chaotic region, and he and his brother Baldwin, who also brought his wife and children along, may have been angling to find a new home. By contrast, the leaders of the northern contingent seem to have had quite different motives. Robert of Normandy wanted to gain a great reputation from the venture, one that might help him dominate his homeland upon his return while the letters of Stephen of Blois indicate that he was pressured into going in order to support Robert, a pressure that came from his wife, Robert's sister. And then there's Bohemond. Why would a man who had tried to conquer Byzantium sign up to defend it? As you may recall, Bohemond had been given a lesser inheritance after his father remarried. Robert Giscard's campaign in the Balkans may have been an attempt to carve out a new kingdom for Bohemond to rule. The Italian Normans knew better than anyone the opportunities on offer in Byzantium. As you know, there was a tradition of Norman captains rising high in imperial ranks, so why shouldn't Bohemond switch sides? In the crusading movement, he saw an opportunity to abandon the petty squabbles for territory at home in order to grasp for a greater prize in the East. I must add at this point that these specific motivations should not be separated from genuine religious belief. Human nature is what it is. People can pursue a personal agenda while also taking part in a sincere pilgrimage. The majority of evidence we have points to religious fervour being the prime mover of the Crusades.
In the years before Urban's call, accounts written by pilgrims show the emotional power a journey to Jerusalem exerted over Westerners. In 1087, Herbert of Macon described silently bewailing the enormity of his sins as he set off for Jerusalem, while a Norman clerk wept openly at each of the holy places. Another man from Cologne set off in 1080 after killing his brother. His penance was to visit all the great shrines with the weapons he had used to do the dirty deed, chained to his body. Pride of place amongst these stories, though, goes to Count Fulk III of Anjou, a man who had expanded his territory with great bloodshed throughout his life. He made three pilgrimages to Jerusalem to clean the collective filth from his soul. And on his final journey, when he was an old man, he approached the Holy Sepulchre naked, with a leash tied around his neck, while a servant whipped his back. And as the tears flowed, he cried out loud, begging Christ to accept his penance. The chance to have one's slate wiped clean was clearly a huge motivator for everyone involved. One of the earliest histories written about the First Crusade implies that many of the rank and file believed that martyrdom was on offer if they died, while others expressed their understanding of the Crusade in writing in various monastic charters. This is the reason we know so much about the Crusaders and can plot their locations on a map. Men going on crusade needed money, lots of it. They would have to buy food and supplies across a thousand miles, and many were paying for their followers or dependents as well. So they headed to their local monastery and agreed to mortgage their lands in exchange for cash. Such agreements had to be written up as legal documents, and many have survived and include vital details on why men felt the desire to head for Jerusalem. Documents associated with Stephen of Blois record his anxiety about the journey ahead of him, while Robert of Flanders and Godfrey of Bouillon renounced claims that they'd made on church property before leaving. This was a nice combination of the spiritual and the temporal. On the one hand, they wanted clean consciences before they departed, and on the other, they didn't want disputed lands to be seized while they were away. Deals made with local churches could provide vital supernatural support as well. Raymond of Toulouse made a large donation to Adamar's Cathedral at Le Puy in exchange for the prayers of the clergy. They would keep a candle burning for him for the rest of his days. Dozens of less famous crusaders made similar deals before departing. Bertrand of Moncontour abandoned a huge amount of church property he'd been hoarding, announcing that the way of God could in no way benefit him while he held these proceeds of theft. While Hugh Bochard returned property he'd strong-armed from a peasant because he feared punishment for this sin and wished to go to Jerusalem. The weight of sin was also believed to continue on beyond the grave. Herbert of Thouars sought an assurance from the Bishop of Poitiers that the merit he might gain from going to Jerusalem would also benefit 
his dead father's soul. Family was at the forefront of the minds of most crusaders. Sixty families have been identified where two or more blood relatives took the cross together. And as we saw with the northern leaders, where Robert of Normandy's cousin and brother-in-law came with him, kinship groups were key to the crusade. This is a really interesting part of the campaign that makes perfect sense, but we wouldn't necessarily think about it. A mounted, heavily armoured knight could not operate alone. You couldn't get into your armour and onto your horse without help, nor could one horse really carry you and the weight of your armour and equipment around all day. So wealthy nobles had grooms, squires, farriers, armourers. That last one is a serious concern. Weapons would rust quickly if they were not properly oiled and stored, and one of the scornful remarks made about the People's Crusade was the rusty weapons they carried. So a nobleman who took the cross brought all these people with him. They brought cooks and servants and chaplains as well. Some brought their wives. Others brought huntsmen with hunting dogs and birds to help catch food while on the road. It was only natural then that whole extended households would agree to go on crusade together. This in turn prompted other local young men to travel in the hopes of serving their local notable and winning a permanent place at their table. And what interests me about this in particular is the sheer number of people going on crusade who may have had no choice in whether they went or not. It might only take one rich lord wanting to go to drag 300 others along with him against their will. Under these circumstances, it's easy to see how religious belief might become increasingly important to people pushed so very far out of their comfort zones. And what about other less salubrious motives? As he preached the crusade, Urban offered penance to those who went to Jerusalem for the right reasons, not for those who went seeking money or glory. Clearly, then, the Pope understood that some would join a military campaign precisely for those reasons. Robert of Flanders was noted to have said that part of why he was going was to make a name for himself. And despite warning against it, Urban must have known that the glory and honour attached to freeing Jerusalem from non-Christian rule would be a major motivator for the knightly class. In one of the great epics of the age, the attitude of this elite was summed up thus. He who fears death more than dishonour has no right to lordship. Honour was clearly a motivating factor, not just those looking to gain it, but those who wanted it restored. Murderers and others accused of high crimes signed up in order to clear their name, while Hugh of Vermandois, brother of the King of France, was sent on crusade as a peace offering to the Pope, who had excommunicated the adulterous monarch. Meanwhile, many soldiers of fortune agreed to travel in exchange for pay, from one of the wealthy nobles, or at least the promise of land in the future. Riches are always a potential motivation for men going to war, but it's unlikely that any but the foolish went on crusade, hoping to come back in a higher tax bracket. The cost of going on crusade was huge. 
It's been estimated that a foot soldier would have needed double his annual income to make the trip, while a cavalryman would have needed four or five times as much as he made in a year. Again, this is why kinship networks proved to be so vital, since they could pool resources in order to fund their son's duty. So, we have 60 to 100,000 people on the road. Some were well aware of how arduous this trek was going to be, while others had given little thought to the traumas they were about to endure. Some were stout of faith, hardy and determined. Some were filled with doubts, regret and fear. Some were loyal and obedient, some treacherous. What held them together was their faith, and the belief that they were fighting for a good cause. None doubted that Muslim rule over Christian lands was a bad thing, and they must have all felt proud that they were risking their lives to aid their eastern brothers. This is where the conflict with Byzantium began. Alexius had been happy to manipulate religious sentiment in order to gain more recruits, but he never imagined there would have been such a stunning response. The emperor may have envisaged an army of 10,000, maybe 20,000, coming to serve him for pay. He would have expected a disciplined professional force whose interests would be aligned with his. Instead, what he was facing looked more like the migration of an entire nation, a people who largely believed that they were embarking on a holy war, one which would end with Jerusalem in their hands or their souls in heaven. Byzantium was not engaged in holy war. Byzantium was an empire looking to restore its walled cities in Anatolia, just another small move on the chessboard in the timeless battle to keep Constantinople's interests edging forward. Naturally, then, when the two sides came face to face, they were surprised by one another. To the Romans, the Crusaders looked like a barbarian army invading their lands. To the Crusaders, the Byzantines seemed ungrateful and unwilling to make the same sacrifices that they were. Perhaps the most significant misunderstanding of all was what would happen once the crusade passed through Anatolia. The Romans had a limited agenda to get Nicaea and Antioch back in their hands, allowing them to once again encircle the Anatolian plateau. But the crusaders only cared about the Holy Land. Did Urban really believe that Alexius would march to Jerusalem and capture the city and keep it for his empire? If he did, then he was woefully ignorant of the realities of geopolitics. And that mistaken belief seems to have been widely held amongst the rank and file of the crusade. As you may have noticed, there has been no discussion of military strategy whatsoever. Even Urban's attempt to nominate a commander-in-chief had to be abandoned immediately. The assumption of the Westerners was that Alexius would be their leader once they reached Constantinople. He would have a plan. He would guide them towards Jerusalem. Each side had quite different perceptions about how this campaign would unfold and what its extent would be. And in those misunderstandings and misconceptions lay the seeds 
of future discord. Our introduction to the Crusades is now complete. Next time, we resume our narrative in the summer of 1096. Alexius is pleased to hear that the Pope has begun a recruitment drive to get men to come east and serve the Empire. I do hope he can find enough people. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.